Our scripture reading today will be taken from Romans chapter 10. If you'd open your Bibles there, please. If you're visiting with us today, you are joining us as we've come to this part of the book of Romans. We're going straight through it. We're going to be looking at the first 13 verses of the 10th chapter. And you follow along as I read the scriptures this morning. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, I want you to notice the next verses all begin with this next conjunction, four. So these are all explanatory fours, explanatory gars in Greek. Verse 10, for with the heart a person believes, so he explains what he means, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now I want to make some observations. We have been in a text of scripture that has been dealing with the sovereignty of God and election. And it is an amazing deep, deep doctrine to think about about election. But from just reading this text today and from what we saw last week, I just want us to understand that... Somehow, in the sovereign scheme of God, witnessing is part of election. Preaching the word of God is part of election. As verse 1 begins, prayer for people, that's part of election. And also, a sinner calling upon Jesus Christ to save him or her is also part of election. So what you have in election is you have the sovereignty of God working in harmony with all of those parts Election means you see Jesus Christ as your Savior and not the Old Testament law as your Savior. That's part of election. So all of these dimensions are part of the mysterious sovereign work of God in saving a sinner. And I love what Ellen Redpath, I think it was, observed. The sovereignty of God, when it comes to the will of man, they're just good friends. And you don't waste your time trying to reconcile good friends. Good friends are just good friends. So we let God be who he is in the sovereignty of God and salvation. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the scriptures this morning and the exposition of this most amazing passage that we'll look at in just a few minutes. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Our Father, we bow before thy sovereign greatness today to thank you for the plan of salvation that you've created that enables sinners like us to have a relationship with you that will take us all the way into your heaven. We thank you for your grace gospel. We thank you for grace. 
We thank you that you opened our minds and hearts by the convicting work of the Spirit of God, and you brought us to see our need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. We thank you today for your precious Son, Jesus Christ. We are grateful that he paid the full price to save us. We ask that you would work in our lives and keep us from being religious, but develop us into being righteous. And the plan of your salvation, Lord, that we've been seeing in this book of Romans is complex, and yet it's so simple. Jesus paid it all. The blood that he shed is by judicial calculation, the blood that allows you to wash away our sins and give us your righteousness. It's an amazing, complex plan of sovereignty, and we thank you for it. And on this Lord's Day, we ask that you open minds and hearts of people that are here and people all over the world and save them like you did us. Thank you for answers to prayer that we've seen this week. Thank you for the success of surgery of Deb Barber and Ron Lance. We thank you for the fact that a date has been set for the sentencing of the man who killed Marty Knipp. We thank you that you have watched over us this week. You've provided for us this week. You've cared for us. You've protected us. We pray for our leaders, Lord, of this city, of this state, of this nation. We would ask that you would intervene in their sovereign minds. Use your sovereign power to intervene in their sovereign minds that govern us and turn them to make right decisions, decisions that are moral and righteous, that will lead us to thy blessings. We pray that you would cause them to decide things that are consistent with your word so that you can bless your people. We ask that you bless churches all over the world today that are proclaiming your truth, and we would ask that you would bless our church today here. In Jesus' name, amen. I had another squirrel episode this week. <laughs> I'm driving home from the office, and in the middle of the road is a squirrel. I slowed down, and the squirrel started to the left, like he was going to run off to the side of the road. Now, I've learned over the years that a squirrel can mentally act squirrely. <laughs> so I moved slowly, and sure enough, he darted back to the right. I slammed on my brakes, and he lived. I said to my little friend, one day your confusion's going to get you killed. Not today. Not today. If there's one subject you don't want to be confused about, it's the subject of your salvation. You don't want to be squirrely going this direction and that direction when it comes to your salvation, because that'll get you condemned. In fact, it's estimated that there are 4,000 religions in the world, and each of these religions have their own theories and opinions about God, and each of them have their own theories and opinions about the direction you need to take if you're going to be saved. These religions compile their list of things, that you're supposed to do or you're not supposed to do and claim that if you follow the list, you'll make out okay. Almost all religions have devised their own work system that claim they'll lead you to salvation. There's a religious smorgasbord out there. You can choose whatever you want. You can church shop and you can church hop until you find something that tells you what you like and what you want to hear. The problem is, God's salvation isn't based on what we like or don't like. It's not based on what we think or what we feel. It's based on his sovereign plan. And when it comes to your salvation and my salvation, God moved Paul to clearly write and express the truth about the gospel of God, the gospel of grace. 
And what Paul develops is the only way to be saved is call out to Jesus Christ by faith and ask him to save you. It's just that simple. That's the thesis. The only way to be saved is you call out to Jesus Christ by faith and ask him to save you. You can do all kinds of religious stuff, but unless you personally, by faith, call out to Jesus Christ and ask him to save you, you are not going to be saved. Now, what is most interesting about this is the first word of verse 1. It's the first word in the English Bible, the first word in the Greek text also. It's the word brethren. So Paul's writing this to believers. You would think that believers would already know this stuff. But apparently they didn't. And apparently Paul knew they needed to grasp this point. Why? Because there are a bunch of religions out there. They've invented their own system. And Paul knew that God's people, God's brethren, would run into those kinds of things. Now, Paul had just developed the importance of Israel in the program of God. And he realized that they weren't saved. In fact, in Romans 10.1, we read, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. What we read here is Paul realizing that Israel wasn't saved. He prayed for their salvation. Obviously, no matter how religious those people were, they weren't saved. They were religious, all right. They had religious rituals. They had pomp and ceremony. They had religious things going on, but they weren't saved. And Paul prayed they would be saved. And may I just interject here, if you really care... For someone, you'll pray for them. That's what Paul's doing here. If you really care about someone being elected by God to salvation, you'll pray for them. Prayer is somehow part of that process. That's what Paul is, by his own example, teaching here. We have a prayer meeting here every Wednesday night, and always, always, every Wednesday night, we pray for Israel. And one of the things that we pray concerning the nation Israel is that many from the nation Israel will be saved. We have prayed that for years and years and years. We pray that many from the nation Israel will be saved. Why? Because they aren't saved. And we realize that God is the one who saves people. And we realize that prayer, which calls upon him to save people, is part of his elective process to save people. So when you pray for your children or you pray for your grandchildren, or you pray for your brothers, or your sisters, or your relatives, or your friends, and you pray to God asking God to save them, and you're praying for their salvation, you're praying the kind of prayer that Paul prayed. I don't pretend to understand all the nuances of the sovereignty of God, but it certainly works in harmony with prayer. Somehow God has programmed that in there, so it's never wrong to be praying for the election and salvation of someone. Now, there are three important salvation topics that Paul wanted God's people very clear on that he develops here. And the first one is salvation is not by religious zeal. Salvation is not by religious zeal. Verse 2, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Don't kid yourself. People in religion are zealous about religion. People in a denomination, they're zealous about that denomination. Most people have a zeal about their religious passions. What most people lack is true knowledge. 
In fact, the word zeal specifically speaks of like an intense burning for something. Mormons actually use this term. They talk about having a burning in the bosom to describe the passion that they have for their religion. And it doesn't matter if they claim to have a burning in the bosom or any other body part. All it is is zeal. That's what zeal is. Some burning passion that you have for something. But carefully notice what Paul says about religious zeal. It was not in accordance with knowledge. Now, the guy who's writing this had a lot of zeal before he was saved. When you read the religious zeal of the Apostle Paul before he was saved, you read that account in Acts chapter 9. I mean, that guy was a zealot. He was tracking down Christians with the idea of murdering them. I mean, that's how zealous he was for his religion. Their religious zeal was not in accordance with true knowledge of real salvation. In fact, it's interesting, the word that Paul uses for knowledge there, it's epigonosco, which talks about a real depth level of knowledge, a knowledge upon level of knowledge. So their zeal, the religious zeal, apart from real knowledge, is a surface level stuff. Religious zeal is shallow emotionalism. It isn't based on truth. That's where Satan does his great work in religion. I mean, Satan does his great work in religious zeal. People that are emotional and sensational, experiential, and they're just involved in that which is irrational. And if ever there were a man that knew, as we mentioned earlier, about that kind of religious zeal, it was Paul. He described it in Philippians chapter 3. He said, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law found blameless, but whatever things were gained to me, these things I've counted as loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. Paul said, my zeal was religious rubbish, and it could not and did not save me. Now, in verse 3, Paul explains what his religious zeal did. The religious zeal did not know about the righteousness of God as being a gift, and people thought they could be as righteous as God to the point where God would give them everlasting life. That's their zeal. We can do stuff to inherit everlasting life. They were zealous about that. What most people don't realize is that the righteousness to go to heaven is a gift from God. It's not an earned paycheck. But in their zeal, they sought every way possible to establish their own righteousness. But they themselves, as the text says, would not submit to the righteousness of God that is found in Jesus Christ. Look, if you actually think you can establish your own righteousness before God that's going to take you to heaven, you lack true knowledge of what's really going to take you to heaven. You don't have the kind of knowledge that Paul's developing here. These people were totally ignorant of the real righteousness of God that's only found in Jesus Christ. So in their religious system, they came up with all kinds of works they really thought would help them achieve it. And when someone is seeking to establish their own righteousness, thinking that they're going to somehow be good enough for God, they're refusing to submit to God's righteousness. We're not talking here about just a little confusion. We're talking here about rejection. The fact of the matter is, oftentimes some of the most religious and zealous people that you'll ever meet are people that really don't have a heart that wants truth. They like religion, and they like what religion does to them, but they're not after truth. And we need to learn an important lesson here. Religious zeal is not the same as actually being saved. Having religious zeal is not the same to having everlasting life. 
I mean, a person could have a great zeal for religion. A person could have a great zeal for denomination. A person could have a great zeal even for the church and still not be saved. One can have a great zeal and get involved in causes and crusades, make sacrifices, and end up burning in everlasting fire. Oftentimes, people with great zeal impress other people because they look impressive with their zeal. It doesn't impress God. Now, zeal isn't a bad thing when it's based on true knowledge. And true knowledge is deep knowledge, not shallow knowledge. What we clearly see here is you can't be saved without right information and right knowledge. You need right knowledge to be saved. You need to realize that your righteousness and your goodness will not save you. God's righteousness will save you. So Paul says the first salvation topic that people need to understand is salvation is not the same as religious zeal. All kinds of people have religious zeal for all kinds of religious stuff. His second topic is salvation is not by the Old Testament law. In verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices righteousness, the righteousness which is based on the law, shall live by that righteousness. Verse 4, ladies and gentlemen, is as clear as it can be. The righteousness of God is found at Mount Calvary, not Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, God gave the law. Mount Calvary, God hung on a cross. And what we see here in verse 4 is Jesus Christ is the end. He's the completion of the law. He puts an end to the law as being any type of means of being right with God. He did not come to tone the law down so that you could believe on him and then pick a few things from the law you like and try to apply that. He came to put an end to it in your life to give you the righteousness that would be necessary to take you to heaven. Now, many religions and denominations have missed, I think, this critical point, and they actually are trying to keep people under the Old Testament law. And to be honest with you, I think in many ways Reformed theology has done that. I think Reformed theology has robbed people of truth and freedom that they have in Jesus Christ. They don't understand the grace of God. They just don't understand this. Salvation is not by the Old Testament law. You cannot get God's righteousness by trying to keep the Old Testament law. And when it says that Christ is the end of the law, there are three ways that you can view that. First of all, he was the person to whom the law pointed. The law pointed to him. He put an end to it. He was, as Paul said in Galatians, the law was like a tutor or schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. What that law was designed to do for people is to bring them to the point where they'd look at the law and say, well, we can't keep all of that. We've never kept all of that. And when they came to that realization, it would point to one who would come who could keep it all and could fulfill it all for them. That's what Paul says in Galatians. So the law was like a schoolmaster who pointed to Christ. Secondly, Jesus Christ was the complete fulfillment of the law. Christ said, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill every nuance of the law. But then he said, Christ is the termination of the law. In Colossians, I nail the law to the cross. In Romans 7, 6, I released believers from the law. In Galatians chapter 3, they are God's sons by faith, not the law. 
In John chapter 1, the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In Acts 13, 39, you've been set free from the law through Jesus Christ by faith in him. It's Christ who abolished the law in his own flesh. He put an end to the law and having people think they can have a relationship with God through the law. And tons of religions out there believe they can have a relationship with God through the Old Testament law. In Romans 10.5, Paul quotes a text that Moses wrote in Leviticus 18.5. And in that text, God says, in order for a person to live, he must keep all the law, all the statutes, all the judgments. And the law condemns us all and curses us all because no one has kept it except Jesus Christ who redeemed us from it. And when Christ was here on earth, he said that one would have to be as perfect as his father in heaven. Be perfect as my father in heaven. Well, who of us have been that perfect? None of us have been that perfect. We haven't even got close to that level. Our problem is no human is ever going to be that perfect. And according to James, if you break just one commandment, you're guilty of breaking them all. And let me explain how that works with an illustration that's been used many times. Let's take the Ten Commandments. Let's say that you're dangling over a cliff and you're holding onto a chain, and that chain has ten links to it. And each of those links represents one of the Ten Commandments. How many of those links have to break to kill you? Just one. You break one and it doesn't matter you had ten. You broke one, basically you broke them all because you're gone. That's exactly what James says. Now, one would have to be ignorant or an arrogant buffoon to think they can be as righteous as God. And that law points out the fact that Jesus Christ put an end to the law. He's the way of salvation, not the law. One time I was in a very intense discussion with a man who claimed his mother was the most saintly woman who ever lived on this earth. And if anybody was going to go to heaven, she would. I said, really? I said, what'd she do? She never smoked. Never drank, never talked about people, never missed a church service, gave her money, helped the poor. When he got done saying that, I said, well, is that your list? I said, is that the complete description of her religious experience right there? Is that it? He goes, yes, that's accurate. I said, well, I would say by our standards, your mother was a pretty good woman who's on her way to eternal condemnation. Well, he got pretty incensed at that, and that got his attention. He said, how can you say that? I said, well, let me ask you a question. Did your mother ever offer a blood sacrifice to the Lord that was acceptable in his sight? No. Did she offer some type of atonement to God for her sins? No. I said, she's heading to condemnation. Because without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sins no matter how good you think your mother was she's lost without jesus christ see you can compare yourself to another person and be pretty good but we're up against the righteousness of god and we're up against the law of god and none of us have measured up to that standard so there's no way we could be saved by the old testament law two years ago June 30th, which would have been last week, two years ago, Neil Agias of Malta, the same island that Paul visited, made the longest swim in the Atlantic Ocean, nonstop swim in the Atlantic Ocean. He swam nearly 75 miles in 50 hours in the Atlantic Ocean near Malta. None of us could get close to that. I do 500 yards at a crack. 
He did 75 miles, 75 miles of swimming. Now, let's say that you take all of us out there and you drop us in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, you can say, well, if you want to swim to the United States, you're going to have to swim 2,000 miles. Or if you want to go to Europe, you're going to have to swim 2,000 miles. You're right in the middle here. Make your choice which direction you want to go, to the U.S. or to Europe. You have a 2,000-mile swim. We take off swimming. Well, some of us wouldn't get very far. We'd drown. Some of us would get maybe a few hundred yards, maybe a mile. We'd drown. And a guy like Neil, man, oh, man, that guy'd get 75 miles, but he would drown. See, what you're up against here is the whole ocean. And you're not going to swim the whole ocean. We all drown in it. What we're up against, ladies and gentlemen, is the righteousness of God in salvation. And when you stack ourselves up against the righteousness of God in salvation, we're all drowning. None of us, none of us have kept the standards of God. We haven't even got close. Now, some can compare themselves to others, and you may be able to say, well, I'm a few miles closer than you are. Great. I've climbed up that ladder of righteousness. I'm 50 miles up. Good. I'm up there 75 miles toward heaven. That's wonderful. Good for you. Your problem is you're never going to climb yourself into heaven because to get there, you have to have the righteousness of God. You aren't going to make it. Paul says salvation is not by law. Which brings us to his third topic. It's by saving faith. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Now, Paul wants to really establish in these verses, that the righteousness of God that will save a sinner is by faith in Jesus Christ. And there are four saving faith facts that he lays out here. First of all, saving faith trusts Jesus Christ for righteousness and not one's works for righteousness. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Now Paul here is quoting freely from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 10 to 14. In a context there, Moses was giving a charge to the nation Israel, and he's discussing about the fact that she's about to enter the promised land. And the main issue he's addressing in that discussion is how you're going to get the blessings of God and receive the promises of God when you get into the promised land. And Moses points to the fact that Israel doesn't have to do anything difficult to inherit the land. They don't have to, like, ascend a mountain. They don't have to climb some strenuous mountain. They don't have to descend into the deep. All she needed to do was believe God. That's all she needed to do. Follow God, believe God, trust his word, and you'll be having the blessings of God. Those Jews would rather try to climb a mountain. Those Jews would rather try to go into the deep. And Paul is using that to make a point about saving faith. Saving faith is not some strenuous work we do. It's not some spectacular thing that we achieve because there's nothing we can do or achieve that would compare to Jesus Christ. Scaling up some mountain doesn't earn the incarnation of Jesus Christ who came down out of heaven. Descending into the deep doesn't earn the resurrection of Jesus Christ who came up out of the grave. In other words, what Paul's establishing here is your works, no matter how strenuous they may be, no matter how impressive they may be to other humans, 
have absolutely no connection to the righteousness of God that's found in Jesus Christ. In fact, he says, the thing that really produces this kind of faith in you is what we've been preaching. Paul says in verse 8, the righteousness of God comes through faith, and that's the thing that we've been preaching to you. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. You'll certainly see that, Lord willing, next Sunday. So his first saving faith principle is that, look, you get saved by trusting Jesus Christ, not your own works. Secondly, saving faith confesses that Jesus is God. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Well, you notice the as adverb is in italics, and I'll explain that in just a minute, and some have the word is, and if it's accurate, that also is in italics. But the word confess means to acknowledge or agree to something. You have to say the same thing about something. That's what confess is. You say the same thing about something that the scripture says. And the point of this is in order to be saved, you must acknowledge before God and confess to God that Jesus Christ is God. You must understand who he is dying on that cross. He's God. He's not less than God, he's God. Now some translations, as I pointed out, uses the verbal is, Jesus is Lord. Others supply the adverb as, Jesus as Lord. But in the original text, neither word is actually there. Grammatically, the way to understand this is Jesus is appositional to Lord. In other words, you must believe that Jesus equals God. Jesus equals Lord. That's how you diagrammatically analyze this. Now, the word Lord is a word that refers to the fact he's sovereign God over everything. He's sovereign master over everything. And the point is, you have to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the God-man who can save you. And nobody's going to confess that about Jesus Christ unless they believe that in their heart. They're not going to say that. These religious systems don't say that about Jesus Christ. They refuse to say that about Jesus Christ. Most in Judaism refuse to say that about Jesus Christ, that he is in fact God. The thing that makes Christ shed blood so potent, the thing that makes Christ work on that cross of Calvary so salvific is the fact that he is shedding the blood of God, the blood of the God-man. And one who is truly saved will confess that about Jesus Christ. Mormonism won't do that. It won't do that. It'll say he's the son of God like we all can become sons of God. Jehovah's Witness won't say that. They'll say, well, he was the son of God, but he wasn't God himself. Christian science doesn't say that. Christian science says he was not God. Judaism says he was not God. The Muslims say he was a good prophet, less than Muhammad, but he was a good prophet. None of those religious systems are leading people to salvation because they refuse to acknowledge and refuse to confess who Jesus Christ actually is. He's God, the God, the God's Savior, Messiah, King. And unless one believes that about him, they cannot be saved. Which brings us to his third saving faith fact. Saving faith believes in Christ's resurrection. Notice in verse 9, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saving faith believes that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is evidence of our justification. It is proof that he's the only one who can give us everlasting life. 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves he's God. He proves he's the only Savior. It proves he's the only one who can give us the righteousness of God and justification. And it proves he's the only one who can give us everlasting life. Now, a lot of good people who've loved the Lord die. They don't come back up out of the grave. Jesus Christ did. It's proof that he is, in fact, who he claimed to be. And those who are saved realize that the resurrection, as Dr. C.I. Schofield said, is proof that our sins are gone. And to believe in Jesus Christ means you're depending on him to save you, not yourself to save you. And you're not depending on religion to save you. So Paul says you need to understand this. This resurrection is critical. It's critical to you having salvation and being saved from your sins. And finally, he says, saving faith confesses this belief to God. Now, in my opinion, this text has been grammatically mangled. But if you notice the fours, and those of you that are in that Wednesday night class, you'll spot these conjunctions here, because these are all explaining what he means. One statement explaining to another. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now the connection between true biblical salvation and your heart and mouth is this. When what you say to God with your mouth lines up with what you believe in your heart, and that's the connection here, when what you say with your mouth lines up with what you believe in your heart concerning God's righteousness, you are saved. You are saved. If you truly are saved, or if you truly want to be saved, you'll not be ashamed or afraid to bow your head before God and admit to God that you want and you are believing in Jesus Christ to save you. You'll communicate that. God knows and sees the heart, and he can quickly ascertain if it lines up with what one is saying with their mouth. Now, carefully notice to whom this confession of mouth and heart are made. It's not made to the church. It's not made to the pastor. It's not made to the board. The text says it is made to God. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a confession and a calling out to God. I don't know how you miss those fours. That just explains all of that. This is not talking about some public profession of faith. We're talking here about a private admission and communication that one is making to the Lord that they believe in their heart that Jesus Christ can and will save them and they call out to God and ask him to save them. And it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or Gentile. I mean, Paul's clear on this. He said, I don't care what side of the tracks you come from, whether you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're religious or not religious. It doesn't matter if you have religious zeal or no zeal. If a person will call upon Jesus Christ to save them and believe in their heart that he's their only God's Savior who can save them, you will be saved, whoever you are. And what's interesting about the whoever in verse 13 Actually, it reads all who, but in either case, it's a singular, not plural, which is just important. Because what that would indicate is every single individual, every single individual must call upon Jesus Christ, acknowledging who Jesus Christ is as the God, Savior, Messiah, King, to save him or her. 
So this is not some generic thing that's happening here. This is every single individual who's calling upon Jesus Christ to save them. Paul said, I don't want you ignorant of this stuff. You need to understand, you aren't going to be saved by your own righteousness. You're not going to be saved by the law. You're not going to be saved by works. You're saved by the God person, the one who died, who arose from the dead, the one who can give you everlasting life, the one that can give you the righteousness of God. He said, that's what we preach. So no matter whoever you are here today or whoever is listening to this today, no matter what your failure, what your sin, what your ethnicity, it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't matter what your religious background. You need to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, and if you will, you will be saved. That's what Paul taught here in these verses of Romans 10. May we pray. If you've never invited the Lord Jesus Christ into your life, what a wonderful moment this would be for you to settle that. It's between you and God, by the way. You and God. He sees your heart. If you really want Christ in your life, invite him in. Father, we thank you so much for your precious word. We thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the wonderful privilege we've had today of looking into this great text that was written by this Apostle Paul. What a grasp he had of things, Lord. Thank you for his zeroing in on the grace gospel that's by faith alone in Christ alone. I pray that you would continue to develop us, Lord, that we would be wise people in understanding grace and understanding your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.